We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the True Faith, Newcastle United podcast. Newcastle United won. Aston Villa won in the must-win game for Steve Bruce's Newcastle. Another one comes, another one goes. Still no win. For Newcastle United, you've got Alex Hurst, Norman Riley, Adam Widritten, and special guest this week with us to talk through the game and all things Newcastle United, uh, as well as look at his brand new book, uh, Black and White Night, how Bobby Robson made Newcastle United again, which we're going to touch on at the end of the show. It's Harry DeCosmo, um, freelance journalist and author. Welcome, Harry. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me on. I'm really uh, honoured to be here. So thank you very much for, for inviting me on. Pleasure. Pleasure as always. Just just to show everyone, here's the book out now. Why don't you tell people, and we'll remind them at the end, where can you buy it, mate? So you can buy it from pretty much every, all good bookstores, which is an incredibly difficult cliche that I've had to get, <laughs> get used to over the last few weeks. All good bookstores, good bookstores. I think online, basically, at the moment, given the situation, Amazon, uh, Watstones, and um, WH Smith are the main the main distributors. You can also come to me for a signed copy uh, if I've got any left, which I'm not sure I do at the moment. But yeah, mo- mainly you can get it from 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 anywhere you would you would imagine. You can probably order it from there. Lovely stuff. We'll talk more about that later on. First of all, we'll have to get into the delightful subject of Newcastle one, Villa one. Steve Bruce said it wasn't a must-win game. Good job, eh? That he said that. Harry, how do you feel about it? The morning after the night before. <sighs> The difficult thing about it is, every game, Bruce will come out and say it's not a win, a must-win game after they've not won it. So before the game, it's a must-win game. And the narrative is, it's a must-win game. And yesterday's narrative after the game was, despite it being a two points dropped, was um, that they breathed life into their relegation battle with that late equaliser. Now, I understand that the mood will be different, but if you can flip it and say Newcastle took the lead and then equalised. It's the same number of points. It's exactly the same result, but you can guarantee that the narrative afterwards be would be two points dropped, doom and gloom, Fulham can now catch up. And that's kind of where I'm sort of at with it. Is it, it, it It's only where... And that's a, a, a common theme of among every result, that you know, negative result, under particularly under Steve Bruce in the last couple of years, is that the result, not the performance, and they're uh, then sort of dictates the context of what how people look at it. I'll give you an example. Last week when we played Wolves, he suddenly talked about in the pre-match that 
We played well at Molyneux. We didn't play well at Molyneux, but because it's a draw and no one's looked into the result as much as if it was a heavy, you know, the, as if it was a three 0 defeat, he can get away. He, he can get away with that because people don't remember the games that weren't won, that weren't lost as much as they do, you know, even no matter how bad the performance was. And it was a very similar game in that Newcastle were they huffed and puffed. They, they, it was the same as it's been for so long in terms of flat. It was. There was no quality. I don't understand this system that he's playing where he's trying to take strikers away from the pitch, the, the area of the pitch where they're supposed to be. Um, and not, you know, he's not playing players in the right positions. And that's what I took away from um from, from that game was that he, you know, he 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 says that Newcastle are only as good as their strikers, but really they're only the strikers are only good as good as the position that they're playing in. And Newcastle are not he he is not getting the best out of the team because he's not playing a system that works the system that I didn't necessarily think was the best way to get at the to get out of um you know I didn't I didn't you know think think it was the best way to get you know get get the best out of the team when the play, when Malmron's uh some Ackerman and Wilson were fit but it's certainly not the best way to get that system. Certainly, isn't the best way to get out the best of the team when it when when they're not, and that proves yes that that showed yesterday. And it was a uh, was everything I expected it to be, uh, and I, I just get, I get frustrated because the narrative of it not being a must win game is only in it's only suddenly a must win game, not not a must win game when they haven't won it. Whereas before, everyone was talking about it being needed to be a must win, and the fact that they drew it. And then the and the way that they drew it sort of seems to have distorted the way it's actually viewed. When actually it's a pretty terrible result. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm pleased you brought up that Wolves comment because I think it is relevant to what we're seeing. It's just it's just like a lack of detail. That's what Newcastle United in, in, in this version of it seems like. It seems like a kind of half-assed, you know, doing the bare minimum. So like Bruce talks about, you know, a good performance at Wolves when we, we barely had a shot. I often think, how does that filter through to the players? You know, if, if the players are kind of constantly fed this, like, don't worry, lads, that was good. When we all know it wasn't good, and in, in, in my perspective on last night, it was once again uh, a comment that Norman's made previously, a very good comment, is that teams can barely rouse themselves to players. Like, if you look at some of the performances this season against sides we've played, like good sides, um, you know, you had you had some people saying that when, when Chelsea beat us back at St. James's Park in, in November, whenever it was, that they were going to win the league. And in fact, like Chelsea barely even turned up. It was the same when we played them away. And whilst that's Chelsea, and you could say the same about Manchester United at Old Trafford, um, you know, look at the performances that Wolves, West Brom and Villa have put in against us in the past three weeks. You know, they've been really, really poor. And, and I've, I've gone out of my way to check the, the reaction amongst their fan bases have all suggested that the performances that they've put in that game have been amongst the worst of their season. Now, you could argue, and some people might argue, that that's the product of Newcastle United playing well. That's the product of you can't always just um, criticise your own team and not give any praise. But the fact of the matter is you've got three sides there, and I, I made the mistake of saying they were all bottom half sides, whereas Villa are ninth. Three, three sides there with very little to play for, You'd include West Brom in that. You, you know that was probably a must-win game for West Brom, but realistically, they were relegated. Villa have got very little to play for. People are saying that they've got a outside chance of Europe, but they've come into this fixture in terrible form without their best player. Uh, Wolves absolutely nothing to play for. And, and in all of the games, you could make, you could make the argument that Newcastle United were probably closer to being on the losing team than the winning team. Yet Steve Bruce, like you say, Harry, 
kind of spins these as, as positive results. And I'm really pleased you brought up the formation. And, and this is this is the thing where Norman, I'm keen to get your thoughts on this, but this is the part where like Harry had also like your input because you know, as a as a journalist and someone who, like you said to us off air, you, you attend uh, virtually these days press conferences with the manager. Um, you know, me and, and Adam were lucky enough to spend some time with Rafa Benitez when he was manager here, and I was lucky to, to spend a lot of time with him in the promotion season at the training ground at his invitation. And and one of the things you I always left thinking was, I mean, I, I absolutely hands up admit I don't really know anything about football compared to these blokes in, in inside the game and the knowledge of the game. And I think that comes across in your book as well about Bobby Robson and in his kind of his whole career, you know, right from the early days being the kit man as well as the manager and all that kind of stuff to, yeah. to the later days and his knowledge of the game. But you look at Steve Bruce, you look at that formation and every single Newcastle United fan I know, every single one thought that playing Dwight Gale as the left-sided split striker, some people call it a winger, was fucking mental. Every single Newcastle fan I knew. And the fact that it didn't work, Dwight Gale was anonymous in the first half, Ryan Fraser struggled through the middle. Um... And then they changed it on 54 minutes. And it's like, is that change an admission of failure? Is that change an admission of right this mental plan that we've come up with? It's gone so badly wrong, we're going to have to change it. Because they'll have known before the game, hang on, lads. Someone, surely, Jamal Lassell, someone in the change room, one of the coaching staff, is Dwight Gale really the right man to play on the left-hand side of the pitch here in a left-winger position when John Joe Shelby's finding them with balls over the top and, and Dwight Gale picks it up and then has to go back to Paul Dummett and there's no one in the box. Is that really the right the right plan? Um that that that's the most one of the most frustrating things is we're sat here talking once again about another game Newcastle failed to win two wins in nineteen in all competitions now, and and it's not it's not even like we're giving ourselves the best chance. And normally before you come in on, on the on the tactics, I know you want to talk about them. I'll say this: Do you think Steve Bruce has ever played that formation in his twenty odd year managerial career? In fact, before Graham Jones came to the club, did it even factor into his thinking that a diamond in midfield and two split strikers was the formation to, to turn around our results because I don't I think he's he's had this formation almost imposed on him and we did a show with a Luton fan uh, on our patent platform um, and the Luton fan told me that Jones was reasonably well liked by Luton fans when he was manager there but he had this ridiculous formation that he simply would not change from regardless of opposition regardless of situation you would not change from this formation and here we are Newcastle United in March 2021, and the conversation I initially had with them, because the last game of football I was at was um, Wigan v Luton in the Championship, just before lockdown. Um, the conversations we're having today and you're all listening to are the same conversations Luton fans were having, thinking they were on the way out of the Championship under Graham Jones. Norman, it just seems like a totally... It seems like a situation that in three or four years' time, if we're still podcasting, we'll be kind of laughing back, laughing about as we're in League 2 or something. I don't know. What are your thoughts, mate? Well, first of all, who would have known that you would have gone out on such a high in terms of your last um, live game of football, Wigan and Luton? If you'd only known at the time, you would have appreciated it more, I'm sure. What a classic. Um, the formation, the split striker formation, it's it's not, a, it's not a split striker, is it, ultimately? It's basically three advanced midfielders with Ryan Fraser playing as a, a deep-lying centre midfielder, supposedly offering an attacking threat. I guess... And I guess I've also heard it called the false nine position, which you're basically looking at Ryan Fraser as a false nine, right? But ultimately, this false nine position, the concept of it's ridiculous in many ways because you know you're either a centre forward or you're you're a deep, you know, you're a deep line forward or you're an advanced attack midfielder. But 
Bruce, as you say, this this whole formation, this whole system has come about because of Graham Jones. It's got nothing to do with Steve Bruce and Steve Bruce's career and what he's wanted to do from day one at Newcastle in terms of his um, supposed desire to play front foot football. This is something that's been discussed on the training ground when Graham Jones has arrived. And because of picking up a decent win at Everton, a win against Southampton, and because we've picked up, we've averaged, I think, a point a game for the eight games, including Everton, um, it, they're going to stick. They're going to. They're just going to stick with it. They're going to stick with it because ultimately, during that period, we haven't been getting thrashed. We've like you know we've out of the eight games, five of them, five of them we haven't lost in right. So that's that's the kind of way they look at it from a statistical perspective. Oh well, you know, eight games, only three defeats, five games that we haven't lost. Not necessarily not the win. The win aspect of it doesn't matter. You know, three of them have been draws, right? So points wise, it's still too low really to keep us up this season. But it's the fact that we've only lost three out of five, so we've. We've lost less than 50% of the games, so we'll just keep sticking with this, you know, because it, it, it must be working when it's clearly not. Um, putting Gale on that side of the pitch with Ryan Fraser through this, the centre, there isn't there isn't another Premier League manager who would do that. If you give any other Premier League manager that squad of players, there isn't one of them would do that because it, it's, it, it's almost like no one else would even think of it. No one else would even think to conceptualise the idea of... Dwight Gale as a wide man with Ryan Fraser through the centre. It's just, it, it, it's a total madness. I, I can't, the, I'd love to be party to the discussion on the training ground when this team was being selected with this particular, you know, these positions, because I, I think, I, I genuinely think a football fan with a very baseline of knowledge could probably ask questions when they were discussing it. Why can you, why can you justify it? Because I, I can't think of a, of a justification that would be, um, make you turn around and go, ah, I can see what you're doing there. Um, and also, you know, I think it's all fine and well playing a, a false nine if you're basically Spain in 2010, managed by Del Bosque, and you've got Xavier Iniesta behind you in peak chess Fabregas, <laughs> peak chess Fabregas with David Villa doing a lot of the running for you. I think it's probably all right then. Gail, Joe Linton, Ryan Fraser and John Joe Shelby, you're not going to get the same kind of performance as Spain 2010. So I think, um, I, I think there isn't any logic to it. I can't think of one positive reason why that was the system that was picked, other than the fact that we haven't lost um, at least 50% of the games since uh, since Jones came in. That's it. That's the only reason I can give. Yeah, I mean, I think, for me, the, the thing going back to what Alex said about details and thing, the, thing, the thing with Bruce is, when... I'll give you an example of something that I've asked Bruce and people have asked Bruce is, particularly this season, after games, someone will say... You, you you know where was the where was the attacking intent in the second half and he'll say oh well we put three strikers on the pitch and there's no, there's no like logic and actually putting three strikers on the pitch might make you it might take you out of like contention in midfield or something like that and 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 might mess up tactically across the pitch but he says well we put three strikers on the pitch therefore we 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 showed intent and that's kind of the level of and that's what I mean about the level of detail and if you compare that to you know I think you know no one mentioned about Spain and 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 Xavi and Iniesta and stuff, but like if you think about like so like you take like Pep Guardiola for example when when he uh, came up with the false nine thing at Barcelona I was uh, you know you read those books and you read about those those sort of tactical minds um, he came up with that because he looked at Real Madrid in the, in the game against Real Madrid ten years ago and he looked at Real Madrid and said that the centre halves aren't pulling out enough so there's space in the midfield let's put Messi in there and and and, and shock them and that's what worked. And, Therefore, it worked because of that. And it was specific to that game. Bruce doesn't do specific to games. And that's part, part of my problem. Like, take the, another example. Take the Brighton game. We, we win 2-0 uh, 
at West Ham at the start of the season. We come into the Brighton game and he's still playing the same team that beat West Ham, um, despite the fact that it's 4-4-2, Carroll's up front, so the team's static. There's two banks of four that aren't moving properly. It allows Brighton to come to St. James's Park, play around us with all this energy. Lamptey absolutely rinses St. Maximin down the left because St. Maximin isn't able to do anything going the other way because he's stuck on the left of a four, not in the not higher up the pitch as, as, as the left of a three. And it isolates Lewis as well. Um, and Trossard and, and Mopé, they're all running around us because they're stuck in two banks of four because it's a static formation. And he comes out after the game and says, well, it was unfair to Andy Carroll. So he hasn't watched the games to, to change the system for, for Brighton. He hasn't changed the system for the next game in the way that Guardiola was doing for for um, for that game that I mentioned against Real Madrid. In the way that Thomas Tuchel does for Newcastle, Thomas Tuchel comes out in his pre-match press conference the other week against Newcastle and says, well, this new formation, we're going to play we're playing Newcastle, we're playing this diamond midfield, so they've only got one sitter. They're playing a single pivot at the bottom, at the base of the midfield, so we're going to move a number 10 there, and it's going to, and this is how it's going to play out. And it played exactly the same way because he knew, because tactically he knew what he was doing. And I think Bruce is, I think there's this concept of identity managers now in the game. Um, and not every manager is an identity manager. So you've got Guard, someone who comes in with a philosophy, so a Guardiola, a Klopp, someone like that. Not everyone is like that. I wouldn't say Benitez was like that. He wasn't, he, he would pick the, the, the team to play a certain way based on what he had. Ancelotti's exactly the same at Everton. If you look at Ancelotti at Everton, it, they played very differently to the way his AC Milan did or his Chelsea did. Um, but they play to the strengths of what they've got. Bruce is almost this is, is almost the complete opposite of that, in that he is so against I and mean, he's on record saying he's against tactics and he's against he's not a tactics guy, that he virtually goes out of his way to almost not, you know, and, and to to not look into the detail of it. It feels like that at least. And that's the difference. So managers, the, the, the thing you need now in, in management and, and the key thing is is to be able to look at every opportunity, every opposition and say, which is the best way to, to beat that team? Bruce doesn't do that. Bruce has never done that at Newcastle. I've never looked at Bruce and I've looked at a team that Bruce has picked and said, yeah, I can see why he's done that in this game. Because that he's moved that player there, so he can he can go one on one with X, Y, and Z in midfield. And there's none of that, and that's kind of what Newcastle had. That's all that Rafa did at Newcastle. Rafa would move players around. He would and he would have a go at players at the end of matches because they weren't five yards. They won the game three nil, and he'd be on the pitch talking to someone because they weren't five yards for a certain part of the part, point in the game. That's the difference about details, and that's what really annoys me about Bruce is that. He, it's not that necessarily that he doesn't see the things. It's almost like he rallies against, he's railing against this idea of having to be more tactically aware, and he, he sort of seals as as an insult to to his style, which is quite clearly not not up to date anymore because he doesn't do that tactical thing. You talk about Guardiola, you talk about Tuchel. These are the things, and that's the case around the bottom of the pitch, the bottom of the table. Sorry, you look at Scott Parker does the same thing. He he changes games for certain teams. You know, uh, Graham Potter, even Sean Dyche, it doesn't matter what their philosophy is. It's about changing and, and adapting to certain situations. And that's just something that Bruce doesn't do. I, t- I totally agree with a lot of what you said there, Harry. And um, I just think that it's almost like that Everton win was probably our most dangerous win of the season. Mm. Like the, 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 the fact that they thought that they'd stumbled across something because it worked once 
Um, I'm sort of discounting the Southampton game a bit because, I mean, <laughs> it was a it was a bit of a it was a bit of an anomalous game that it was absolutely chaotic um, in terms of you know how many players they had left, how many players we had going. You know, it was just it was just chaos. But in terms of kind of the purity of that of that formation. It worked in that situation. As you've said, Bruce doesn't necessarily adapt to each fixture. He just, it's almost like Jones has come in, given him this fix, given him this tactic. And I guarantee Steve Bruce doesn't really understand this tactic. He doesn't understand the ins and the outs of it. He's still learning it. So it's almost like he's, I don't think, because I don't think he, he understands it, I don't think therefore he challenges it. And he's still trying to dine out on this, well, we, well, we won 2 0 at Goodison Park kind of. Without actually taking into effect, well, since then, it has demonstrably not not been effective. We have we have different personnel, and I'm just thinking, you know, when Wilson got injured, we after Wilson got injured, we had about a nine nine day break, and I was thinking, well, okay, that's that's well over a week to work out a new way to score goals. You know, you, you, you may be not going to get it straight away, but you can at least work towards, progress towards, how do we play? How do we score? How do we attack without Callum Wilson as a focal point, who we rely on quite a lot and who was integral to that win at Goodison Park and the way he held the ball up, laid it off for, for the likes of Willock and people around him making the runs, Almiron in particular, the chemistry between him and, and the Paraguayan were, were excellent. And yet, you, you, you're right, Harry, we, we, are, we, are, we are using the same stale old tactic it's a, it's he's trying to it's trying to make it a one size fits all and th this idea that Gale should start out wide and Fraser who a few games ago put in twenty crosses in a game like he is a winger he 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 hugs the line that is his game he's he's been playing there probably since he was in school like what what possesses Steve and 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 this is something that, that, that this whole Gale Fraser thing. This isn't something you can blame on resources. This isn't something you can blame on injuries. Like, it, it, it's it's just shit management. It, it's just a really, really bad decision. It, it, it's and 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 following that, you know, we had one shot on target in that first half, and it obviously didn't work, which is probably why he pushed Gale and flipped them. And and Alex, to go back to your previous point, I think that is an admission of 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 a failure. But you know, looking at heat maps and looking at the touches, like we. We barely had any of our forward players in the box across the entire game, even after the tactical switch. And we managed eight successful passes in the box yesterday. Eight. That's it. Eight passes, which is it's ludicrous and it's unacceptable. Yet I guarantee we're going to be playing the same formation next time around. Very interesting. Very interesting. And... I had some discussions with people pretty much actually on Twitter when I was basically saying the formation stinks, which it does. I agree with Harry that I don't think it was the best formation when everyone was fit. I think Callum Wilson um, was far less effective against Southampton before the, the injury and against Palace because of that formation. Um, but but I do have people telling me that we've got much better since the switch to the formation. All right, it's now one win and seven uh, in the last seven games. But, it, but even then, like because the five at the back was so bad, because it was, oh, I forget the stat now, two wins in 25 in terms of league games, whatever it was, um, because it was so bad, it's like your house is on fire and you hoy a bucket of water in it. It's going to be better. Of course it's going to be better. It's a bucket of water. But it's still shit, and it's still Ryan Fraser playing this 
ridiculous position. And I was having a chat with someone after the match, and they were just like, fucking hell, Fraser was rubbish. And it's just like, yeah, but you know, in his whole career, do you think he's ever played there? But if you're if you're Steve Bruce and you're the coaching staff and you've got to try and win this game because we just can't win. We just can't win as a football club and we'll have to win. And you've got this kind of gift of a Jack Grealishless Aston Villa who is so important to their team. It, it, he's like Alan St. Maximin levels of importance to their team. Um and to think that you're gonna you're gonna your solution to your winless position is Ryan Fraser through the middle and Joe Linton on the pitch. And Joe Linton's got loads of love at the minute, which I can't abide. Maybe we'll talk about it later. But yes, there has been a slight improvement. Yes, there has been a slight improvement from playing five at the back to this formation. We don't you know, roll over and die in games. We don't give the opposition 75% of the ball for large periods like we did in those games. Great, fantastic, well done. Why don't we build on that? Why don't we try something different? And it's one thing to start with that formation every game, but to not change it at all. <laughs> Not think you know what this isn't working against West Brom was probably worse than yesterday because yesterday was was a kind of tight game against a better opponent. But to not think, hang on here, I might have to go four four two. Hang on here, let's bring Carroll on a little bit earlier, a try and win the game. I've seen nothing from the last two fixtures to me that suggests that. To go back to what Harry was saying about the way Bruce spins things post games, which he's done on both occasions now, I've done nothing. I've seen nothing to, to suggest that he thinks. That a draw isn't a bad result. That a draw is okay because if a draw was was, I think the draw is a bad result. But if a draw is a bad result, then surely you have to try and do something to win the game and to force the game. What did we? When did we make the substitution? The substitution? Yes, it was at the 80th minute or the 78th minute, which was a right back for a right back. Was that the first change? No, no that Murphy came on Murphy, yeah. um, f- for Fraser, I believe, in the 79th minute, and then it was the the, the Kraftman Keogh was about four minutes later. Yeah, 83 minutes. But like that's that's a time that we're chasing the game, and he's making right back. And for, you know, from all I can see, Kraft wasn't injured. It was a tactical switch, and yet, like, was 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 switching the right back at that point. Was that- Has Kraft not been subbed in the last three games? I think I'm right there. Is he is he been ta- like yeah, bizarrely he taken off? He's like, been what? injured a couple of the times, I think, but he always seems to be fit again for the next game. So it's like, ML mate, just <laughs> just just stay down, <laughs> Norman. He won't change what we're doing at the minute because Bruce doesn't make changes until we're getting thrashed. He so we haven't we haven't been hammered right look the defeats right. Man City and Chelsea. It doesn't matter what the score was against them because we're always going to lose to Man City and Chelsea. This is this is the logic of Bruce. Man, it's Man City and Chelsea. What do you expect? Man United. Happen, right? Man United. Right. Did I say Man City? Yeah, three times. <laughs> Did I? Yes. <laughs> God, I've only had one beer. Um, <laughs> yeah. So th- there's that, right? They park, park those games, right? Park the yeah, Manchester United City um, and Chelsea games. Um, and look at the Palace match, right? 2 1 loss. But you know what? We played well, didn't we? Played well by 25 minutes. So that, that's fine. It's a, two, it's a one goal deficit and we played well for a period of the game. These games, these last three games, despite the fact that the opposition has been, you know, almost negligent, um, almost given with the game. West Brom aside, who are just a terrible team, full stop. We haven't lost them, right? We haven't lost those games. And then Everton and Southampton, we won. So the way they'll be looking at it is oh, actually like this is this is great. This we're not getting hammered, we're only losing to the teams that we expected to lose to. The, the game that we did lose well, it was only by one goal and we played well. So why would why would I want to change it? I, I genuinely think that if we drew our next three games, or let's say our next six games, we draw three, win one by a goal, and lose two by one or two goals, right? Against Liverpool and Man City. I still don't think it'll change because I think 
that'll be taken as, as good. That'll be taken as all oh, the system is working because you know we're not getting we're not getting hammered and we're picking up a few points despite the fact that the points that we're picking up possibly won't be enough to keep up. So we get relegated. We get relegated like in third or like second uh, sorry third bottom without actually having been hammered without having picked up much points. But it'll say we looked at it well actually we didn't play that bad did we? That, that's how I think that's how I think it works. And I, and I think the only way it'll change is if we go on my next match against Brighton and literally get battered like 3-0. That's the only way I think it changed this system will happen. And that's the sad thing, isn't it? Um, I, I, I want to talk about this later more, but this is so different to the previous relegations, which were just like, you know, car crash football at times, car crash results, players not trying. The players are trying. You know, I don't think anyone could make the argument that the players aren't trying, but if you, if you set them up to lose almost, if you set them up in a foreign alien formation that negates their qualities then 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 almost what can what can they do um and and you know you look at bruce's previous relegations uh with hull and birmingham you know as, as birmingham sides and as hull sides they hardly concede any goals for relegated sides the defensive records were excellent i think i think birmingham still have the best defensive record of any side ever relegated um, and that just feeds to exactly what you said, Norman. There, Bruce almost went down with those teams. Relegation still in, uh, sorry, relegate. Um, you know, without much criticism because they were in games, they were drawing games, they couldn't win. And 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 I suppose we get what you pay for, don't you? Like this is not a surprise. What is happening right now is Steve Bruce. Adam, we should talk about the game a little bit. Twenty-eight minutes into the show, um, let me put to you. Um, Newcastle played well and were unlucky to concede like they did and were the better of the two teams. What do you think of that? And I'm not saying I agree with that, but what do you think? I don't think that's the case at all. I think I think Villa came with more intent. Now, I had a look at some of the stats, Alex, and um, I was just interested to see about kind of... Because I, what I noticed is we, we players like Joe Willock, who I think is switched on lively and he and he demands that he really wants to have the ball like all oh, he gets annoyed when he doesn't get the ball i noticed a couple of times that he had found space in between the lines in between midfield and defense and he was kind of yeah play it through i'm here that you know there was a massive gap between the midfielders foot you know for, for shelby to play him in dumb it one time as well like he was demanding you know that was a way into their final third and and instead what did we do we turned around, we played sideways, we played backwards. Now, I had a look at how many uh, forward passes we made and then versus how many either sideways or backwards passes we made. And we made more sideways slash backwards passes, passes yesterday than we did forward passes. And for context, Villa were about 50-50. Whereas there was a bit of a, there was a there was a, a larger differential between us and they were the away side, so that almost tells you like they they were playing with purpose to get forward, and what I couldn't understand, Alex, is what exactly was our was our strategy, and one of the problems I've seen over the last few games is, right, we aren't playing with we aren't playing with a target man because we we haven't got Wilson, but we're playing with diminutive attackers, whether that be Almiron, Sam Axeman, Fraser, Gale. Yet we still we still persist in trying to like knock a few long balls up, and I and I I don't know why we do that. Um, seemingly because, as we've discussed, as everyone on this podcast has already mentioned, Steve Bruce just does the same thing and is unwilling to change uh, this this magic formation that got a result against Everton. Like I, I, I he, those things in in isolation just don't make any sense in the wider picture. They don't make any sense, and we really struggled to show attacking, attacking intent because 
you know, our counterattacks were so ponderous. There was no urgency. There was no lung-busting runs through the middle. I mean, Willick, I think Willick was really trying to make it happen, but he wasn't receiving the ball to then be able to do that. Um, classic example as well, when we had we had a counterattack, was three on three. You had Gale on the on the, on the left hand side, not, you know, he didn't, he didn't know what run to make because he, he doesn't normally make those runs down the left hand side. And, 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 uh, you know, the attack fizzled out and it was, it was so obvious that we don't, we, we don't practice those attacks. We don't practice like, or certainly that configuration of, of, of attackers, of attackers hadn't, hadn't practiced that. They didn't know what they were supposed to be doing. They didn't know what the best choices to make were. And that, and that comes down to the coaching side, and that's I'm not. This is this is on Bruce and the, 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 all of the coaches. What? How did they think we were going to score? We eventually scored from you know a, a recycled um, set piece from a second phase, but like that. I mean, that was like with 15 seconds left, that almost didn't happen. You know, like I don't know throughout the course of that game what we were supposed to be doing, and what, why weren't we using? The dynamism and, and, and enthusiasm of of Joe Willock, who's got really nice technique, he's intelligent, and he moves well. Like he could make things happen. Yet we just decided not to use him. Instead, you've got trying to go down one wing, trying to switch it, and you, you know you've got Kraft and Joel on the other side. Who then? I'm sorry, then they're not going to set up any goals. They're not going to assist. Well, so I'm really confused about what exactly those tactics were and what the hell we've been working on all week. Well said, and. And I think I think one of the big issues, Harry, to to lead on from what Adam's talking about and the kind of the, the, the bafflement <laughs> that exists is is the tactics is John Joe Shelby, who picked up a lot of criticism last night on social media. Um, you know, you you do have people who advocate for his inclusion. I've seen people tweeting today that he's the only one who passes the ball forward when he doesn't play, the team has less possession on average. It seems very strange that Isaac Hayden is playing on what the left-hand side of a diamond, and John Joe Shelby is screening the back four. What do you make of his inclusion, and how do you think he got on last night? There was, there was a two-minute spell where he's played two passes. I think one was straight out of the pitch, and then the next one was like he lost the, I thought the first one. He lost the ball. Then it's straight out of the pitch as well, and yeah, it just doesn't make sense in that formation as well. It doesn't make sense because what is the one? thing that we've seen Shelby succeed at at Newcastle is in the championship, he was the key man who found Gale and he doesn't have anyone to find because there's no one in that area where he's finding it. You know, so he plays his, I think someone, someone said he, he, earlier, he was playing the balls to Gale who's on the left and having to go back to Dummick. So it doesn't make sense to play him in that role. Again, just as it doesn't make sense to play Isaac Hayden, it's a common theme. It doesn't make sense to play anyone in the role they're playing in at the moment because the system doesn't suit anybody who's playing at the current time. But Shelby annoys the hell out of me a lot of the time because he slows the ball down, or the game down, sorry. he, he, he the It's just pedestrian. It's, it's never... You know, with with force, it's never with with any intensity or any intent of doing anything. It's 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 a Hollywood pass that might work, it might not. It just doesn't. You know, it, it, it makes very little sense to me. I think the, the thing that you know, uh, going back a, a wider tactical thing that 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 I wanted to make earlier that I forgot to say is that I think that this team, Bruce stumbled across. He, he's tried so many different things. He stumbled across four two three one at the end of last season. 
and Newcastle looked better than they had. You know, the, that was in the game where they beat uh, Bournemouth. They, you know, they, they played uh, Villa in that formation, I think, as well. And they were better in that, you know, in that formation. And then they signed um, Lewis uh, Fraser and Wilson, ideal for that formation. Four-two-three-one. You can build that formation around Wilson. You can build it around even Shelby if you want to, but you don't have to. You've got options in that uh, double pivot at the, at the base of the field. You can build it with Almiron and, and St. Maxman. It works perfectly. And yet, yes, there have been injuries, but it's never been used. And that was it was that sort of – it felt like that they were building – with those signs, they were building towards that. I thought that that's what they were doing. And then against West Ham, we played 4-4-2, and it's really weird. And I think that that's – you know, going back to Shelby – that's the best formation for him because he can play the ball over the top. If you're going to get the best out of Shelby, he can play the ball over the top for, for Wilson, who is a better version of Gale in that he can play on the shoulder, but he can also hold it up as well. He is the most complete striker Newcastle have had since probably Denver Bar in terms of his the ability he's got to do rounded, you know, in, in terms of how well-rounded his game is. I've, I've, you know, people don't hold, he holds the ball up so well, for example, and, and he's so clever in that sort of sense as well. So, Shelby just is is the latest in a long line of players who doesn't suit this formation. But also, he 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 wouldn't be in my team even if Newcastle were playing four 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 two three one and everyone was fit. He because he yes he can play the odd Hollywood pass, but that but beyond that, the 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 negatives certainly outweigh the positives for me in that he slows the game down. The, the Hollywood passes are hit and miss anyway. The simple passes are hit and miss. He slows the game down. He sometimes, you know, he, he, his tackling's not not too bad. It's better than 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 I thought it was, but he just doesn't offer enough in in midfield. When you consider that Willock is is busy, you've got Hay, Hayden who's who's really good at what he can do. It just he just doesn't fit in for me. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree with everything you've said, and you've just touched on there about how. Shelby slows the game down and therefore you, you have to assume that the management team are fine with them slowing the game down. I think one of the Steves, one of the redundant ones since Jones has come in, um, really needs to show these lads just some some counter-attacking football video clips. Because there was twice yesterday in the, in the well, I can't remember which half, but we had a three-on-three situation against Aston Villa where we turned the ball over quite high up the pitch and found ourselves in this situation. Jesus Christ, like, no idea what to do, no idea where to run, no idea what the pass was. You had Isaac Hayden, I think, in the second half in that situation. Took about four touches of the ball. Who was a counter attack? Who who was on the counter and takes four touches of the ball <laughs> before making a pass? Just just like this is like simple football stuff that you learn when you're a kid. And I'm sure these players are capable. But I, again, I, I go back to the the lack of detail that seems to be there. That we want to play counter attack in football but we don't know how to play counter-attack in football, so it's frustrating. Um, Roman, Joe Linton, man of the moment. Uh, maybe not, but certainly get more praise than usual. What was your assessment of his performance last night? Um, quickly on Shelby, everything you said there, bang on, but I tell you what, next season in the Championship, tearing it up, man. 4-4-2, Stevie Brooks, 4-4-2, So it's good that he's there. He's just keeping him warm for next, keeping him warm for next season. Um Joe Linton, so look, you know, I'm not um, I'm not on social media, so I, I really uh, I really see it. Um, but obviously, you do pick up a fair bit of it, being involved in the various True Faith WhatsApps group that I am. Um, and there was praise for him. And I think, look, I'm not going to... 
I'm not going to criticise Joe Linton in the sense that, you know, I'm going to call him all the terrible names under the sun, right? He, he, he can't help how poor he is at football, right? You can't help that, right? It's not his fault. It's not his fault he's getting picked, right? And I think a lot of Newcastle fans, and it's understandable, right, because the kid costs 40 million. The want, there's just this pathological desire for him to, to be good, right, to turn it around. So anything he does, anything that can be construed as a positive, regardless of what it is, you know, if it's if it's turning a player on the halfway line, but then nothing coming of it because he's picked the wrong pass or he's lost control of the ball after turning the player, it's the turning the player that'll be focused on that specific split-second moment when he's done something good. So across the course of a game where he's literally anonymous for most of the match, where he's, he's running and his positional sense are terrible, if he does two or three things that are really good, that's that's where the focus will be because there's this desperation for him to be good. But unfortunately, you have to look at the whole context of performance. And there were at least three occasions yesterday where he had, he had chances yesterday, right? He had chances. You know, the, I think the one in the, in the first half where for some inexplicably, rather than just leather it with his left foot, he tried to cut back in and let Conce have the time to get back. That's it. Chance gone, right? Any forward with a sole clinical forward or Dwight Gill in that position, perhaps, that, that's a shot straight off. Second half, there was the one on the right-hand side where he had a great, uh, great chance and he just tried to pull it back. And the first half, I think Dummett put a cross in. Perhaps it was Dummett's craft. It was actually craft. And what he does, he doesn't attack the ball in the box at all. He stood rigid and he and he just jumped, like he just jumped like vertically. There was no attempt to attack the ball. It's almost as if the ball had to be lit- literally on his forehead for him to do that. There was no attempt to go over the ball. And you know what it is? It's fear. He's absolutely and utterly lacking in any self-belief in the box because his finishing has just been so shocking since he got here. Look, you look at his goals record at other clubs other than Rapid Vienna, which, you know, it's the Austrian league. Um, his, his goals record's poor. He's got a poor goals per game record for somebody who plays up front, supposedly. So um, that, that, to me, suggests that he's not necessarily a clinical finisher. And since he's got to Newcastle, his goals record's so poor, he's got absolutely zero confidence. So the balls are coming at the box, and he, he's, he's not even attempting it because of that. Yeah, oh, he's getting the ball in the box, and he's trying to pick a pass because he's scared to have, have a shot. So regardless of how many carries he does, and regardless of how many players he might take, he's, he's detrimental to that side. Like, genuinely yesterday, I truly think, up, up against, by the way, a Tyrone Mingzo was having an, an, an absolute shocker. I genuinely think in a mobile Andy Carroll for 50 minutes yesterday would have been more beneficial. Three occasions, Paul Dummett whipped crosses in the box. Like, at least if Carroll was in the box, it would have been, he would have challenged for the ball. Like, that's all you want is just challenge for it. Joe Linton, from day one, other than Spurs away, has been detrimental in that side. And, and look, for all of the positive focus on the little bits that he does that are really good, like, Joe Linton, as a forward, isn't going to keep winning this division, I'm afraid. And, and, I, and I, that's not a criticism of the lad himself. It's just, he's not a good player. It's, it's that simple. My thought on Joe Linton, basically, is I think, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen another player, like, and, you know, we talk about Bruce and we talk about why, how we come to this situation where, you know, why, what's the thought logic in playing this formation? What's the logic? I don't think I've ever seen another player where, what's the logic in even buying him? And how did they look at him for so long and think he was a striker when he never played up front? Why, what, at what point did they think he was worth 40 million? All these questions that have been asked over the last two years that this, like, I don't, I still don't understand the logic. And to the point where people are questioning what, what 
I don't think there's anything untoward about the transfer itself at all. But people wonder because it just doesn't make any sense. Like in previous, when players have struggled before, they've at least that they've brought been brought in. Maybe they've been overpaid for a little bit, but they've been brought in and played the role. They've just maybe struggled to adapt. Jolinton is 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 just not sensible for anything that he's that he's been asked to do, which isn't his fault. Having said that, I completely agree with Norman that I think people are desperate for him to succeed to the point where. They will they will focus in, hone in on any small thing that he does right, and they'll say, Oh, he was really good at this, this, this. And then you almost forget that they've spent forty million pounds on a striker and he's the record signing by double the amount of the previous one six months earlier in Almiron. And you think, okay, you know, at what point do you do you things that you 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 take for granted that that Fraser or St. Matterman or Wilson or Almiron do, he gets praised for because otherwise you're not going to praise him for anything else. And on the other side, there are people who are desperate probably to criticise him and, and call him every name under the sun that I think is probably, you know, I think I think one thing to say about Jonathan is, is it's a pity that, I know Rafa wasn't a big fan of the idea of signing him, but it's a pity that we ever saw Jonathan under Rafa because he someone clearly needs tactical, to be told everything to do and, and to be told where to stand and to be told what to do, it doesn't. It's, it's no coincidence to me that Julian Nagelsmann called him a, a a machine, and he was someone who would work with him and found a role for him that worked. I think that this is the point that needs to be made with Jordan as well. That he is not being looked after as well. Uh, everything else is is he is he is part he is in part to blame for for, for everything he's, that happens with him. But at the same time, he isn't being being managed properly and I think that that's something that and this team isn't set up to play in any way like like, like he would like like that would benefit him in the way that he, that because he, he was a good player at Hoffenheim and and, and um Nagelsmann rated him so obviously there's something there somewhere but we've already gone into how Bruce's lack of understanding or lack of desire to understand in tactical tactically someone like Joe Linton is definitely going to suffer from that um, but I do completely agree that that he was he, he was slightly better maybe than previous performances yesterday. But there was it was nothing to write home about, and yet people are desperate to write home about it because it's the only time you get to say anything positive about him because he's because he's never actually. I don't think I've ever watched him apart from maybe that Spurs game and thought, yeah, he was actually one of the key players today. And that's a, a definitely a problem anyway. But it's certainly a problem when you spent forty million pounds on on a record uh, record signing. Well said, and, and I think the frustrations that come into it are, are a lot about who isn't playing because of them. So I think I think fans would like myself, who's hugely critical of him, I agree completely with with the assessment, but also with Norman's assessment that I think he's detrimental to the team. Um, and it's like this is this is the point I make about Steve Bruce and an occasion when you have particularly pundits, which Norman's going to come on to in a bit. Um, people make excuses about injuries, and, and and yes, Newcastle have injuries, but they also still have selection dilemmas. There isn't another team at the bottom end of the division who could have three forward players out and still have a, a selection debate about who plays because you have, you know, if you look at last week or even this week, you have um, Carroll on the bench still. Could he play? Could he play a different position? Could he do better if the formation changed? You have Jacob Murphy, Adam who came on against Wolves and changed the game almost single-handedly. Because Julian missed the big chance, people forget that Jacob Murphy picks the ball up on the halfway line almost and creates a goal-scoring opportunity. And then he comes on again yesterday and and does very, very well. You know, and, and let's face it, 
Joe Linton is playing the position in which you would most likely play Murphy in this formation. So do you think there's an argument for, for well, first of all, I'll ask two questions. Do you think there's an argument from starting? So do you think you should start and do you think there's any chance of it happening? Yeah, two very different questions there. Yeah, I firmly believe that he's done enough to get in ahead of Joe Linton. Um, you know, look at look at look at the impact. Do you know what I like about Jacob Murphy? It's his it's his impetus, it's his desire, it's his enthusiasm. You know, he has sat out, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the referee as well, you know, he, he sat out a lot of games waiting for his chance. And often, if he was given a start, I, I do remember he was, he, he'd been given a rare start away to Everton, actually, as it was. And he he crossed the ball for Rondon. I think it was a 1-1 draw. And he, when he starts, he usually delivers. Um, he was playing cup uh, football at the start of this season, and it was against... I, 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 can't remember the team. It was we smashed them. It was it was the one where Joe Linton scored uh, that long ranger, um, and it's I just like his drive. He's very very positive, and the mentality difference between him and Joe Linton. Yes, they're completely different kinds of players, but put those just put that to one side. He has belief in himself, and you know his you know it, it, it scurrying. He's always scurrying after the ball in you know the way that he recycled. Um, that attack for, for for the Lascelles equaliser was was you know was, was crucial, absolutely crucial. Um, he was only on the pitch for fifteen minutes. Yet, who scored? essentially gave him you know statistically he was he was man of the match. He he, he did the most. He, he was the most effective player out of. And I'm talking both sides here. Out of the whole game, Jacob Murphy uh, finished with a seven point seven out of ten, and that was better than the next highest, which I think was Lascelles with seven point five. Like in fifteen minutes. He's created as many chances as any other player on our side. So we had Dummett creating two chances. We had Ryan Fraser create two chances. Murphy created two chances. And he came closest to otherwise scoring beyond beyond Lascelles. He was came closest. He was, you know, a foot away from that just dipping under the bar and being a beautiful goal. Um and the composure that he showed, he, he, you know, he left <laughs> he left the defenders on their arse. Uh, you know, and I firmly believe he's done enough. But to go back to your, your second question, Alex. Do I think that Bruce will play him? No, not don't. I think I think I think Bruce is stubborn, and I think he's pig-headed, and I think he will, for whatever reason, he will continue to play Joe Linton in that in that position when he he really shouldn't. What we should be doing for the next game, we should be looking for a more kind of if we are going to play that sort of formation, let's go for a four-three-three, a more traditional one with wingers on the on the wings. Let's let's be uh, let's be outlandish here. Let's let's play Fraser on the left, Murphy on the right, Gale through the middle, maybe because he's a central striker, um, and then have like you know Willicone, you know, being a conduit between between midfield and attack, and he can sort of support as well with with Hayden sitting and maybe you know shove a long staff in. Let's be more outlandish as well. What do they have to do to usurp Hendrick or Shelby into that position? But you know, Murphy for me, the impact there, we can't afford to leave him out. At the minute, he's the only one who we lacked urgency all all yesterday. He came on, and suddenly we were busy, and suddenly we were in the attacking third more. And he's he's at the centre of it, and you know, like I say, his attitude's spot on, and he's clearly got a bit of a bit of talent as well. He's certainly performing better than a lot of the other attacking midfielders that we have fit at the moment. He should start ahead of Joe Linton, no question. Nice one. And we'll head to Brighton next week. Um, if I just have a look quickly on the internet, because I've forgotten what time and day the game is. But uh, 
It is the, I mean, it's the biggest game of the season so far. It's uh, it's Saturday night, eight pm. Other teams around us play a couple of times before then. Some of them. So who knows the position we'll find ourselves in. But but Harry, to finish off the podcast in this segment, and maybe before we talk about your book, mm-hmm. we've now played twenty eight games, which is what Steve McLaren got at Newcastle in twenty sixteen. Um, and do you think? that Newcastle have put themselves in a position where, for argument's sake, and it might not happen, and I hope it doesn't happen, Newcastle lose that game 3-0. If Newcastle lose that game 3-0, is Steve Bruce out of a job? Do you think it's, they've they've backed themselves into this ridiculous corner where they won't sack them? Journalists who are close to them have been briefed to say, you know, this is why they haven't been sacked, this is why I'm not sacking them, experience. They simply, do you agree? You could disagree. They simply cannot lose that fixture. What do you think, mate? Oh, they can't lose the fixture. Um, but I, the thing is, I, I believe going back to what I said at the start that if they don't, if they draw that fixture, Bruce will come out and say, "Well, it wasn't a must-win fixture somehow because the last fixture was the same and the last fixture was the same." So we need to start winning these games at some stage, and this is probably the last one before the run gets stiff, more difficult. So in that sense, it is that. But I don't think there's there's a point where. There's a point where Newcastle will. I, I genuinely, I was thinking this the other day. I think if Newcastle go down uh, with Bruce in charge, they'll keep him because they'll believe that Bruce can get him back up because of this this idea that he's he's got this great track record, track record of promotions. I think. So I don't. I honestly don't think they'll sack him anyway. That, that's that's the that's the belief I've actually come to. I don't think he's going to get sacked because. And the other thing is that arguably, um, you know that. Who, who, and this is no, by, by no means a, a way of saying we shouldn't sack him. I don't want to get, I want to get that out there straight away. But there isn't a Rafa around the corner, so I, I just think it's it's somehow Newcastle just have to somehow get through this in the way that they got through the Southampton game, in the way that they got through, you know, with points in certain games and wins last season. It just has to be like that. There hasn't been a point where I've been confident that this Newcastle United can get wins through their own performance it's you know in a string of results at least um because but I don't I honestly don't think he'll get sacked because I think I think Ashley despite what's all going on with this idea of the takeover and whatever which which people it seems to be some sort of weird sub, subplot and this idea that if, if if you know what happens to the takeover if they go down but I honestly don't think that either way Bruce will get sacked on win lose or draw on, on at the weekend that's grim. That's really grim. Um, we'll have, of course, a full Brighton preview on our Patreon platform this week. Me and Norman also also going to do a State of Play podcast looking at the overall relegation picture. Norman, uh, one of the things I meant to come to you earlier on, but I forgot, uh, Bruce and Joe Cole, kindred spirits, post-match. Oh, wow. Joe Cole's comments. As soon as a full-time whistle went, obviously they cut back to Rob Lee and Joe Cole. Cole's first thing... Um, it's a credit to Steve Bruce. Uh, the, he, he praised the substitutions. Didn't question the original lineup or the position that the player started in. No question on that whatsoever. Just praised, pre, literally praised bringing on Andy Carroll for four minutes. That, that's pretty much what, what the credit went went for. Um, he also said, being in mind this is 2021, right? That Newcastle fans, and this ties in expectations, this narrative around Newcastle fans demanding expectations, that we expect the type of football the team played under Rob Lee, the other studio guest, 
And he actually used the words, Newcastle fans expect gung-ho football. And even better, he also said that if Newcastle were without a manager in the position we're in at the moment and Steve Bruce was available, he'd be the first person we'd turn to because he's been there and done it. So all I'm taking from this is, like, if Joe's suggestion he's been there and done it before, he's obviously talking about relegation because he has. He has been there and done it. He's been relegated twice before. So happy days. If we're in a relegation zone and we want to get relegated, he's the man, no doubt. Um, and, you know, if, if he's insinuating that Bruce is the man to keep up, then can you name another club that Bruce has joined partway through a Premier League season and kept up? There's no evidence. There's zero evidence for that, right? Bruce has never done this. He's never joined a club partway through a season and kept them up when they've been in relegation. It hasn't happened. Um, and he's also clearly thinks it's 2003 because that's the last time you could really see Newcastle play a free style of gung-ho football. That's, that's the last time, 2003, we scored more than 60 goals in a season. Even the season we finished fifth on the podium, we didn't hit 60 goals. So this this is a it's a, it's a total myth. Um, and uh, it's... It's the, it's the fact that they're, they're unaccountable. Cole comes out with this, and he's just completely unaccountable. He's not asked about it by the host. What are you basing this on? So this narrative that's perpetuated, it just, it's recycling, recycling. And the same thing happened with Bruce. Bruce, after the match, um, he did the, the classic. This is Newcastle's manager, by the way. Managing Newcastle's always difficult, and the expectations up here are high. He said this after the match. And look, it, it's, it's just constant, isn't it? And the disdain. For me, it, it shows a, a disdain for the club. And what I, what I think should be put to Bruce when he says this, and nobody has, but, right, can you tell us what those expectations are? Like, and, and the evidence you've got for coming to that conclusion, right? What is it? What are the expectations? And what's the evidence you've got for that? Um, right, what do you believe the expectations should be? And why? Ask him that, right? So in, in that case, right, Steve Bruce has taken a mid-table side, right, with defensive records in the top 10 the previous two seasons. And in less than two seasons, he's made them one of the worst defences, in addition to that, the side scores less goals than it did for the two prior seasons, has less points. So I would say to Steve, do you believe you've surpassed, met or not met those expectations? Um, just a couple more things. Do you recall the manager immediately prior like, to you, Steve, ever publicly stating that manager Newcastle is tough because of fans' expectations? Was that ever said by the previous manager? And um, does anyone ever say... Does anyone in the media recall the previous manager saying that the expectations at Newcastle United are too high? It's it, Ultimately, it boils down to this, right? If it's too much to handle, if the expectations are too high, leave. Just leave. If you can't handle it, gone. It's as simple as that. And also, if the job is that difficult, why doesn't he work harder? It's not to do with his talent and, you know, he's... he's, he's He's always going to be in Rafa's shadow. He's never he's nowhere near as good enough. But if it if it is a difficult job, then work harder, work your ass off, get go into training more, prepare for matches better. You know this idea that you know the demand of the fans when we've properly endured, which is what is possibly the worst run of Bruce's entire managerial career. Like we're talking about all of them. Has he ever won two and 19 at any other place? No, because he probably hasn't been allowed to because he's probably been let go before that's been allowed, allowed to happen. Like this is probably the worst. We're seeing the worst of him yet. What we're talking about our demands, you know, and you know, any pundit, any logically sound pundit or journalist who doesn't think that our unhappiness with his performance is, is justified are either they're foolish or they are blinded by loyalty to him. 
this is ridiculous that we we shouldn't have to state this to anybody we should be getting we should be reading about this we should be seeing this on tv we should be listening to this on the radio the same views that are so obvious to us yet are so everyone around everyone outside the club just and apparently even the head coach seems unwilling to even admit to or to to you know to to, to validate what, what what our concerns are, it's absolute bullshit. And, the, and this whole thing that he's setting himself up to not lose, which is what's happened the last few matches, by the way, it's because he's so terrified of losing a game because he knows it'll lose him his job. He's putting his own interest before the interests of the football club. It's the ultimate act of selfishness. I echo Norman. He must go. Walk away and give the club a damn chance at staying up. I just wanted to say one thing. I know I know Norm wasn't having, wasn't digging people out when he, when he said people hadn't asked Steve Bruce anything. I think one thing I would say about Steve Bruce just before I say that is that I think he's used the sort of Rafa, I can't live up to Rafa's expectations as a sort of shield. In a way, I think he's come in and said, I can't live up to Rafa. Therefore, and then when things have got difficult, the mighty Rafa thing, that's, that's, that's an example of that sort of, he came out and said something along the lines of, well, I'm not Rafa, so I'm never good enough anyway. I think there's kind of his attitude to that. But, I'm, you know, I just wanted to put on record that I think in terms of asking him questions, it is no, it is extremely difficult to do that at the moment because uh, the way that the club is and with the press at the moment, it's it's been documented. I don't do the pre-match stuff, which is the really juicy stuff. But to give you an example, I think I've said, I don't know if I said on the, on the thing or off air, when you're in the press conference, it's on Zoom and there's a raise hand function. All of the journalists there are raising their hand, and it, he, they they pick two on a on a rotation and then they move on, and they, and then and the press conference lasts last five minutes. And Bruce has also mastered the idea in the Zoom age of press conferences where it's not easy to shout back. It's you you get they are in complete control of how of how the press conference goes in terms of who asks the question and when. Um, he's mastered that idea, that, that ability to, to to answer a question with very general answers. So it's very difficult for him to be held to account by the by the press by the written press at the moment. Um, so I think that that needs to be said in terms of uh, this is this has frustrated me across the season when people say people aren't asking those questions. I, I know that people like Chris Woff have said this before as well. That those those things are happening. People are trying to hold them to account, but it's very very difficult because of various because of circumstances with the pandemic and the, and the way that the press conferences are, are going at the moment. But also Newcastle's attitude to those press conferences isn't isn't healthy at the moment, and, and that's my honest opinion. Um, but also it's it's also true that, that that it's very difficult for Bruce to be held to account properly at the moment. I think and that needs to be that sort of just needs to be said. Um, no, Harry, mate, I think you're mistaken what I'm saying for no, yeah. the wide out written, written journalists. Yeah. I think you're saying, yeah, yeah. no, I'm not talking about press conferences, pre-match, etc. As you see, we've already had this discussion with Chris Woff and I completely understand that. I'm talking mm. about here and then on Sky TV or BT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Immediately, no, no. when he says a comment like that or when Joe Cole says a comment like that, the person yeah. you and can they bang, snap, just, just ask, just ask. I'm not talking about a Zoom yeah. call or a press conference as it is at the moment. I completely get that. But last yeah. night, Steve Bruce said, the expectations are high and it's always a difficult job. And then the, the next question that that interviewer could have had yeah. could have been, what do you mean by that? It, I, like, mm. I, I can see I can see that that is something that could happen. I'm not talking about um, the Kenny journalism that you do, mate. Absolutely 100%. Mm. Not as you say, we've yeah. had this discussion before. Chris Wofford's been explained. Mm. 
No, that's, I just wanted to just put that all there. So. <laughs> Lovely stuff. That's the end of, of, of this section of the podcast. We've done an hour, an hour on uh, Newcastle United's draw with Villa. What we're going to talk about now with Harry um, is his new book. I'll hold it up for people watching on YouTube again. There it is, Black and White Night House of Bobby Robson made Newcastle United again. Um, Norman, you have to shoot off uh, quickly, so do you want to open up with a question for Harry? I go on, then I will. Uh, I've got I've got a couple of you, but I'll, uh, I'll put them to you a different, another, another time. I, I guess the, the quickest one is, from all your work on this, all your investigative work and chatting with people and whatnot, um, did you ever get a sense of what performance or individual achievement gave Robson his greatest amount of satisfaction at the club during his spell? What one game you mean? A, a one, certain one game, game or... just one one in, one specific achievement. I think the getting the the sense was after the final game was that the atmosphere that you get from people who talk about that that what the way Robson was, um, how how his his sort of his 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 demeanor flip flopped in the game. And he so. It's that Newcastle tune up and then they get back to 2 2. Robson gets really irate about, I think you've seen it on the highlights where he shouts at Carver. And then at the end of the game, when it's 3 2 and everyone's and everyone's going mad at the end, he's telling them to calm down after Bellamy scores. So it's flip flopped completely. And then they all go back to the to the um to the dressing room and have the you know the and the hotel and they have beers and then he just sort of quietly slips off and and has a and has a champagne in his in his room is the thing that, that John Carver says. So I think in terms of one performance, I would get the the impression. Obviously, I don't know. Uh, I couldn't answer that question one hundred percent, but I would guess that one was the one that that, that gave me the greatest sense of achievement was that Feyenoord game, which I think is everyone's to me is the is the pinnacle of the of that team. I think that's that's the game that everyone remembers best because it just encapsulated everything about that team and and, and Bobby himself. Spot on, and on that incredibly happy memory, I'll uh, bid you all <laughs> goodbye. So, cheers and good luck with the book. Cheers, thank you very much. Oh, cheers, yeah. Adam, do you want to take the next one? Yeah, um, Harry, I was just interested because obviously, you've the amount of imagine you know, it would be absolutely lovely to do all the research, um, mm. to sort of like just immerse yourself in successful times again and sort of positivity yeah. and you know yeah. it was a it was a it was a managerial reign that captured the imagination again it was it was like mm. in the Premier League era it was kind of Keegan too wasn't it it was it was that um yeah. you know everyone got behind it there was a romanticism with it and there was a lot of great football and success and great signings and things just clicked and I just wonder from you from all the research that you've done Harry like was there like a a morsel of information a little anecdote that 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 you you hadn't previously been aware of that sort of encapsulates what made Sir Bobby like amazing and you know and just this you know the the, the charisma of him the magnetism of him his knowledge is 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 that is that kind of like one anecdote or a piece of information that you remember just sticking out that like you hadn't previously realised before in terms of to to make to 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 encapsulate Bobby there is one which is the Rob, the Rob Lee story when he's trying to leave. Um, in the last six months, Rob was particularly unhappy um, because the club weren't offering him a new contract, and it, and they'd not particularly treated him well after the testimonial. Um, he he was going and asking about a new contract, and they were putting it off, putting it off, and he was getting a bit hot headed. I think he I think he admitted he he kind of regrets that, but it gets to the point where he's 
chasing up a new contract, but also chasing up whether he, whether after chasing up a new contract, he, he actually decides maybe I need to leave. He wants to go to West Ham. The club won't let him go to West Ham because Derby were willing to pay a fee that, that West Ham weren't because he was I think he was thirty six or thirty seven at the time. Um, and and then he so so he's so he's, he's he's either searching for a new contract or he's searching for uh, the the ability to leave. And um, he goes to Bobby and says, "Can I have a new contract?" And Bobby says, "Freddie Shepherd sorts the contracts." But Rob knows that Bobby sorts the contracts because he's always sorted the contract. He's the manager, <laughs> so he goes to so he goes to Freddie Shepherd and says, "Freddie, you do do you the contract?" Bobby says, you, "Are you doing the contracts?" And he says, "No." Bobby's always done the contracts because Bobby's the manager. You know that Bobby's the manager. So he goes back and says, Bobby, you do the contracts. Your manager, says, I do the contracts. And so can you give me one then? And he says, no, I can't give you a new contract because your legs have gone. And then he says, well, all right, then, well, that, that, that's fine. Let me leave. I've got, I want to go to West Ham. I want to, you know, there's Derby as well. He says, oh, uh, I can't let you leave, son. You're my best player. <laughs> so how so he's your best player simultaneously the best player but also he can't leave because he, he can't give him any contract because his legs have gone no that, that was the one that, that made me laugh the most um in terms of in terms of bobby centric there's a couple of other stories that that make me laugh as well but that that aren't that are more to do with the the the, the way the team the team was in terms of its its spirit and what they got up to but that is the most and that is the thing that that you get the flavor of with bobby there's so many of those stories where Players would go into the the dressing the the, the his, his office really really annoyed and they'd come out just somehow having agreed with him. He even though he's in, he's either in he's either put them in their place or he's um, changed the conversation away from their argument or, and he's thrown them and they'd come away thinking that he was the best manager since sliced bread and it's it's just so it's just amazing how that sort of thing happened. But the Rob Lee story when he told me I, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was the, it was the funniest thing that that that, that I that I. Uh... <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah, I suppose the the, the first thing I've read the book and, and, and one of the things which jumps out of me ha, have at the start of it obviously and having reading it is that it's almost a history, isn't it? It's not a yeah. It's not a kind of your analysis of the period and what went right and what went wrong. It's like actually these are the people who were part of it who were there, who lived it, they, they are telling the reader, I'm telling you as an author, this is what happened and why. And, and you kind of get that analysis from them. So, you know, yeah. you, you get, you get you know, what was wrong at Newcastle under Hullet, I found fascinating, which maybe hasn't been said before. And I think actually that, you know, you've got this like the beginning and then you've got the very enjoyable middle in terms of that progression of the team and, and the little tweaks that he made and, what what Robson thought along the way through yeah. the through the words of others, but then at the end as well, I think you deal very well with um, his exit, and you pay that quite a lot of you know time and space. Whereas I don't know if you know if it would have been easier. To, a lot of people have just ignored that since. Maybe as fans, we ignore that since everyone talks about the Champions League and stuff. But actually, yeah. it was a pretty a pretty poor and devastating end for him for him as well yeah. personally. You know, yeah. was 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 that a decision? You know, what what was the the decision making process behind that? Why did you feel that you needed to include that in what is otherwise such a very positive book? Because it because it is such a key thing that that everybody there needs to look at themselves in terms of looking at how history has been repeated, been been rewritten. Sorry, and in terms of you know, like there wasn't a big outpouring of grief in the way that there was when Keegan left, and the way there was when Rafa left. 
when Bobby left because I think a lot of people did think it was probably time for him to go. And actually, I think and the way it happened is is, is the problem. But more and also what happened afterwards. So there's this so the myth about and it is a myth and and that's what I get across in the book. It's a myth about the um, the discipline in the squad. Yep. Even though those things aren't necessarily nobody's lying when they say that the truth has been shifted to deflect away from the real reasons, and um, you know you get that sort of thing of saying with you know with 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 um, that that whole thing is as it's a, because it's a myth and you get there and you think you know I wanted I wanted people to realise that 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 it wasn't all rosy at the end. And then people talk about Bobby is this, and, and that's, and the whole book is a celebration. As you say, it's a celebration of who Bobby was, what he did for Newcastle, all the things that everyone remembers now, but also I kind of wanted to turn the, turn the camera, turn the camera, turn the, the focus on, turn the lens on the fans, turn the lens on the board and turn the lens on it. Cause, cause you know, you get the, you get the insight into how much that it hurt. I and mean, if you read Bobby's book as well, which I sort of referenced quite a lot throughout, throughout his last one, uh, second last one, sorry. Um, farewell but not goodbye. It's actually written in 2005, I think, at the time, and it's actually there's quite a there's quite a not a bitter or there's quite a sad undertone to when he talks about Newcastle. He mentions about people saying certain things and that, and that sort of thing, and it wasn't all rosy at the end for Bobby. Um, people weren't too upset that he left. I think more they were and and history has told us to be more upset that. That Sunes came in because there was this uh, this idea that, that everyone had gone rogue in the squad, which isn't true. So there was actually no need. And the reason Sunes came in was to was to be a lion tamer. That's actually the way he was greeted by I think Freddie Shepard's wife. Oh, you you must be the lion tamer. When when that and because that isn't true to the degree that it, it's reported as and believed. You know, when everyone talks about Bobby Robson now in the press and even among some fans and you know maybe people even listening to this will think he lost the dressing room. He didn't lose the dressing room. Those sorts of things were happening all the way through his reign, but they only became magnified because results and various other things were going against Bobby. So it became the focus to shift away from what actually happened. And I really wanted to make sure that that was in. So everybody, and that's the fans, the people, some some fans who are reading it, some, some you know, people who, who, you know, maybe... So John Hall was was telling me certain things. I had Sir John Hall telling me certain things. I put them to Mark Robson, and Mark Robson was saying, "This I don't agree with that. And, you know, he also... And, and John Carver, and particularly John Carver and Mark Robson were very open and very honest on how they viewed Bobby's exit and how it was unceremonious, and that needs to be remembered. And I tried to do it in a in a, in a, in a way that was truthful and that was the only that was the only bit I was worried about writing how and I, re, and I actually wrote, wrote it and rewrote it a few times to try and because it's, it's it's difficult to write from an emotional perspective um but actually I think that's that's when the, this decline started is after Robson not when Mike Ashley came in um and not necessarily as I say because Robson left I think if Robson leaves and you get in the right manager for the right reasons who can work with that squad who's maybe got European experience you know, there was the influx of Mourinho and uh, Rafa came in at Liverpool and Chelsea that summer. You could have followed that lead, gone and got someone from abroad who was proven, and or, or, or someone, you know, someone who 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 had been around that sort of area of the of the of the of the, of the table and 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 really made a, a good st- a, a, a good choice to push the team on. It would have been better, 
So I don't necessarily think Robson leaving is the problem, was the problem. It was more what happened afterwards, but also at the same time, just to wrap, just to go around the houses to the answer, um, it's it's to it's to mainly why everyone should sort of like when people talk about how great Bobby was, they should also caveat that with that wasn't how he was remembered at the end of his reign in Newcastle. Great answer. And I don't want to give too much away in the book, but you, you do give a fantastic one of the things I remember most, which I'd never considered before, and that's why it's a great book, and that's why I would recommend everyone listening buys it because I, I'm going to imagine and assume that a lot of people listening to this either were there, were Newcastle United fans, or if you were a little bit too young for that, you've since read so much about it, seen so much about it. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of um, self analysis from the people involved, like you said, but there's also some great analysis from yourself, and you make the point that people say Bobby Robson couldn't manage, you know, the likes of Kieran Dyer and 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 Craig Bellamy are two famous examples, but even right very early in the book, very early, I think Rob Lee and John Carver both both say like set the stall out really early that it, there's this view of this really troubled camp, and it's not like yeah. the entertainers and everyone's mates, but it just it just simply wasn't like this kind of yeah. free fall football club that people sometimes think of. But one of the great points that you make is this is a guy who's who's managed some of the biggest names in world football, the, the, yeah. the most precarious talents, the most difficult people in the history yeah. of the game at the top level. Bobby Robson managed them, and then all of a sudden, the, the narrative has been that he couldn't manage two. Two players who you know yeah. who got in the sack, and I think it's really refreshing to read that fresh analysis from yourself um, about that. Because certainly me, and I'm not saying I, I totally agreed with that that view that Robson left because of that thing or that you know that those players, but it's definitely a well well rehearsed narrative amongst the fan base and, and yeah. wider media, isn't it? And it's uh, was that was that one of the motivations to try and set the record straight, or is that something that came out as you were interviewing people? It was something that I had in mind, and I think because I, because I went to um, this is a long again. This will come into why I'm answering this question. But when I started the book, out, the first thing I did was go to meet Liz Luff at the foundation um, last March, and we sat down at, and uh, and and one of the concer- concerns that she had, of not concerns but questions she had, was how are you going to handle that sort of like. You know, it's it's easy. It's a lovely idea, and and you can wax lyrical about Bobby, but there is a there's a difficult ending. Um, and I said, well, I want to tell the truth, and I want to tell, I want to be factual. And I so I knew, and I and I was aware that that happened. And I remember, I remember being at the Wolves game when everyone left yeah. half before the lap of honor, which is, and I remember being, not having an opinion on it because I was only seven, eight, nine year old at the time. I can't remember how specifically, but. I was only young, so I didn't have an opinion. Um, but that, but the, the fact of being young and being a kid at the time meant that I had to go and tell the story through other people's eyes because my I have a memory of it, but not an opinion on my own opinion wasn't formed as it is now. I'm only was only forming my opinion like you just just alluded to. Some people will read that read what happened from the view of certain people who have certain agendas in that thing. So it, it it's beneficial for. Freddie Shepard before he passed away, or to John Hall to have their view of it that might not be a hundred percent accurate compared to, say, Charlie Woods, the chief scout, who was who who was a close friend of Bobby or John Carver or Mark Robson. They'll have a different. So it was kind of juggling that to try and find the the right way of coming across it. And I basically I just wanted to stand back and let the two arguments sort of come across. And actually, there's one quote that sets it up for me. It's Gordon Milne says it. 
who's the director of football, he says that, and he goes into some really great detail about what Bellerin was like on the training ground, um, particularly. And he says those things were happening throughout the five years, um, but they weren't reported because the because the results were were bad, which were 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 going well, which is kind of relevant to now, given what's happened with Matt Ritchie. Would that story have been leaked if 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 Newcastle were in the top five or top three? Probably not. Um, but the point but the point stands that it's not been it, it's not as it's not as it, it, everything has become airbrushed and well rehearsed around Bobby. There's a there's a nice narrative now between the club and and certain certain sort of parts of the fan base where he uh, he was his, he was his legend and uh, which he was and he deserves everything he's got. But partly, I think the other thing to say is that what's happened since in the in the decline of Newcastle becoming a mid table and and even relegation battling club. It shines the light on how good that period was, and a lot of people look back and think, and think, oh, how good it was then. How you know? But the whole narrative of Newcastle being Newcastle fans being um, overly expect over having over too high expectations probably comes from the end. There, it probably comes like Bellamy references it all the time, and it's rich of Bellamy to say that because there's various bits of of his behaviour that that really sort of. That should that he should be held accountable for his behaviour and what and certain bits that I that I go into, but it the point is that Newcastle fans and and generally people on the other side of that debate need to realise that the reason why that that, that Newcastle fans are viewed as over as as being too high having too high expectations is partly because of the way that they treated that Bobby was treated at the end because it wasn't nice at the end with that Wolves game. It was undeserved, um, and things may and context has changed it. But also, Bobby's family remain quite, oh, quite. You know, Bobby uh, Mark Mark's son came out and said it was poor what happened there. Um, and as as much as the, the things have been airbrushed, I just wanted to make that point. That's all I wanted to do was just just shine it and say, actually, hang on, we all need to be a little bit. Be a little. There needs to be a little bit of 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 re, of, of truth of of myth busting here, I guess. Yeah, no, t- t- totally agree, and I think it's uh, it could be a, co- a whole other podcast that. Um, but you've written a book, fortunately, about it, so people can get the answer, the answers now, or, or, or the facts at least. Um, I, th- I suppose since we've done an hour twenty, we'll we'll, we'll leave it there, Adam. Uh, you jump in if you've got any more questions. Um, but I suppose you know my advice been very very been having been kindly sent it show again for the camera um, available now would definitely consider buying it for yourself or buying it for the Newcastle United fan in your life um, as or even who... or even just buy it to read George Colkins forward as well I would say <laughs> that as well <laughs> <laughs> um, you know I think it's a fantastic book you know someone who thought he was an expert on all things. You know, Bobby Robson era, I learned a hell of a lot, which is, I thought I would, and I, and I did, because there's so much good stuff in there. There's so many good people that you've spoken to, uh, and it's an excellent read. And it's great to see uh, a Newcastle fan like yourself. I assume you're a Newcastle fan. You've seen we've given oh, that one away slightly on the yeah. podcast, but a Newcastle fan <laughs> like yourself, um, able to produce something like this. And and it's it's a, it's a, it's a huge asset to the Newcastle United supporting community. So well done from us at True Faith, mate. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And thank you. And, and that that appraisal is 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 
is really nice to hear because that's what I wanted. I wanted people to be able to read it and think. And throughout the whole thing, I'm thinking, I'm sending it. I sent it. I sent it a lot to Chris Woff, who we've spoken about. He was he, the reason why his 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 quote was on the front cover is because he pro, he proofread it, and I was talking to him and said, "Is it? Do you think it's um? Do you think it's it, it, it's going to teach you know p- change people's perspectives? And it's going to people going to be." Not educate is the, the wrong word, I guess, but that sort of thing of people are going to learn something new about the, that they didn't know and it's going to change perspectives. And he said, well, I already sort of know most of the stories. Anyway, so it's difficult for me to know. But then when you've said that, and I've had other people say that who've read it, that's what I really wanted out of it. I really wanted people to be able to go, that, that's what vindicates the whole the whole thing for me is that people are reading it and going, yeah, actually, I didn't know that. And that's that's something that's 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 really nice to hear. And I, I thank you for that. No problem. Thanks for coming on, Harry. Pleasure Thank to have you. you. Well, have you again on sometime just to talk Absolutely. about all things United because you were top class. Adam, thanks as always, mate. Thank thanks you. everyone for listening. Extra long podcast this week. We'll be back with the next free podcast next Sunday. God knows what we're going to be talking about. But <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, speak your very... Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.